To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On January 7th, 1977, the Maynard Township Police in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, got an unexpected, urgent letter. Opening it immediately, they encountered one terrifying and troubling letter seemingly authored by two different personalities. Here's one part of the letter. Just eats up your heart knowing you haven't caught me yet. Still around. Lindy's marker on her grave just turned me on like she did. And the way she looked all bloody, like the paint on her marker. Here's another part of the same letter. My friend confesses to the killing of Lindy Sue Beechler. As God as my witness, do as he asks. Print this letter on the front page. I am not aware of his intentions right now, but contemplating murder is not his intentions. He is mentally sick. Is it the killer or a cruel hoax? This is Forensic Tales, episode number 190, The Murder of Lindy Sue Beekler. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one woman show, your support helps me find new compelling cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, and produce and edit this weekly show. You can support my work in two simple ways. Become a valued patron at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales or leave a positive review. Now, let's get to this week's episode. On January 7th, 1977, the police in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, received a strange and unexpected letter in the mail. The letter was marked urgent, so officers opened and read it as soon as it arrived, not really knowing what to expect. The letter read, quote, Hi, Sheeler. Just eats up your heart knowing you haven't caught me yet. Still around. Lindy's marker on her grave just turned me on like she did. And the way she looked all bloody, like the paint on her marker. The scratch and nick marks represent the knife stabs. Count them. You wondered if the guy at the gas station were related to the Beechler's murder. Forget it, man. No way. I'll tell you what, Chief Pig. You print this letter in the paper along with a picture in Friday night's Lancaster paper and Sunday morning's paper. And I might confess when I get off my trip. You see, the world owes me a living. Maybe I give you a few hints who I am. Got busted once for drugs a few years back. 
live in West End of Lancaster suburbs. I'm five feet, 10 inches tall, 205 pounds fat and beautiful and capable of killing again without knowing it. Well-educated man in the community, single, good job, but God, please, chief, help me. I am losing my mind. Help me before I kill again. And the headaches kill me every time it aches. The drugs only calm it temporarily. Please, print this chief in the paper so I know you got it. Then I write you again. God, I need a priest. What have I done? Help me, please. The police set the letter down and considered it a prank. Maybe some disturbed or drug-addicted person decided it would be funny to write the police a letter about an unsolved old murder, the 1975 murder of Lindy Sue Beekler. The letter almost seemed like it could have been written by the Zodiac killer himself. The Zodiac had become famous for writing strange and encrypted letters to the police after his murders. But without even giving it a second thought, the police wrote off the strange letter as a hoax and decided not to publish it in the newspaper like the author wanted. Instead, they threw the letter away and assumed it was simply a joke. But what if the letter was right? What if the person responsible for writing it actually did know something about the murder of Lindy Beechler, and the police had no idea? After all, by the time they received it in January 1977, it had been over two years since Lindy was murdered, and no one had been arrested yet. In fact, Lindy's case quickly turned cold after it happened. So what if this five foot ten, well-educated single man from the suburbs actually knew something the police didn't? Two years prior to the letter's arrival, 19-year-old Lindy Sue Beekler was found murdered in her apartment by Maynard Township Police in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It quickly became a murder that shocked not only the small community, but also it captured the attention of the entire state of Pennsylvania. On December 5, 1975, 19-year-old Lindy Beekler was found stabbed to death inside her apartment. It was a murder that no one saw coming, not even Lindy. Before her murder, she had spent the day tying large satin ribbons around poinsettia plants at the flower shop where she worked, a job she loved and looked forward to every day. After she got off work at 5.15 p.m., she stopped at her husband's job to pick up his weekly paycheck. She then went to the bank to cash it and then went grocery shopping at John Hare's Village Market. She needed to stop by the store to pick up the weekly groceries for herself and her husband, Philip Beekler. Lindy and Philip had only been married for a few months, so they were still in the honeymoon phase of their relationship. She worked at the flower shop in town, and he worked and went to school at Millersville State College, where he took college courses. After stopping by the bank and grocery store, Lindy returned home to her apartment, the Spring Manor apartment building on Kloss Drive around 7.15. After she parked her car in front of the complex, she carried her $46 worth of groceries inside the apartment and started putting the food away. But before she could finish, unimaginable terror struck. Around 8.45 p.m., 
Lindy's aunt and uncle stopped by her and Philip's apartment to check on her. They usually came over in the evenings and spent time with her before Philip got off work. But when they got to the apartment that night, they were devastated by what they saw. They discovered Lindy's lifeless body on the kitchen floor. She was stabbed 19 times, and the knife used to kill her was still lodged in her neck. Whoever did this to her didn't even bother hiding the murder weapon. As soon as Lindy's aunt and uncle saw their niece bloody and lifeless on the kitchen floor, they called the police. And within minutes, a dozen police officers were outside the apartment building. This part of Lancaster County wasn't known for murders or violent crimes. So when a call came in about a murdered 19-year-old girl, all available police officers responded to the scene. Immediately, a few things stood out about the crime scene. One, there didn't appear to be any signs of forced entry. No windows inside the apartment were broken. The door was unlocked. Nothing about the apartment suggested someone broke in and attacked Lindy. So the first thought was, maybe she let her killer inside. Or maybe she knew him. The second part of the scene that stood out to investigators was how many times Lindy was stabbed. 19 times with an 8-inch knife still lodged in her neck. While looking around the small apartment, investigators quickly determined that not only had the killer left his murder weapon behind, but he also used one of Lindy's own knives to do it. The knife had been hanging on the wall in her kitchen before it was used to stab her 19 times. So this meant her killer probably didn't bring any weapons with him that night. Instead, after getting inside the apartment somehow, he used one of Lindy's own knives from her kitchen to attack her. And once he was done or realized she was dead, he left the knife behind. But when the medical examiner had a chance to look at Lindy's body, he found something else. According to the medical examiner, she was likely stabbed by at least two knives. The original investigators at the scene were wrong. They simply assumed that because only one knife was found in her neck, and they assumed that it was the only one used in the murder. But, according to the medical examiner, the killer brought at least a second knife with him. The entire scene was a disaster. By all accounts, this was a bloody and quiet attack. Blood smears and spatter were all over the walls, especially in the kitchen where Lindy was likely first attacked. A lamp had been knocked off an end table in the living room. Groceries were still on the kitchen table, suggesting that she hadn't even been home long before she was attacked. She probably didn't even have time to react before she was stabbed. The entire thing may have only lasted a few terrifying moments. Early on, the most significant evidence was a large footprint in blood they found in the kitchen. When they compared the footprint size to Lindy's, they didn't match. The print was much larger. So the first theory was that the bloody footprint belonged to her killer. Based on all the other evidence, the police came up with an early theory about what might have happened. Someone followed Lindy as she went inside the apartment or knocked on the door while she was putting groceries away. He then stabbed her to death 
and fled the apartment before her family showed up about an hour and a half later. This theory would explain why there weren't any signs of forced entry. Although this theory seemed promising, investigators were puzzled by one key aspect of the case, the motive. The police couldn't imagine what the motive would be. The only reason they could suspect was that the murder was sexually motivated. Police did find evidence suggesting that she was sexually assaulted. Maybe the unknown perpetrator somehow managed to get inside the apartment, intending to commit rape, but then the situation quickly escalated to murder. There was also no evidence of a robbery. Nothing seemed to be missing from the apartment. So it appeared to be a random attack without a clear motive. And this left investigators even more confused. Naturally, suspicion quickly fell on Lindy's husband, Philip. Investigators weren't necessarily wrong for wondering if Philip was involved. There weren't any signs of forced entry, so whoever killed Lindy didn't need to break in or break any doors to get inside. And of course, as Lindy's husband, Philip wouldn't need to break into the apartment. He lives there too. Philip was also the closest person to Lindy. He was her husband for only a few months before she was killed. So if anyone had a motive to kill her, it might have been him. It's always the husband who does it, right? Well, not so fast on this one. Philip might have been initially seen as an easy suspect, but there was absolutely no evidence linking him to the murder. He also had an airtight alibi. He was at work when his wife was assaulted and murdered. A handful of eyewitnesses all testified that he was at work. So since he couldn't be in two places at once, he wasn't ever considered an official suspect. Once Lindy's husband, Philip, was officially cleared, investigators were back at square one. Even after conducting over 100 interviews, they still had no promising leads. So about a week after Lindy was killed, Lancaster County District Attorney Richard Ekman decided to step up the investigation by adding more state police officers to the case. They hoped the additional law enforcement manpower would help generate new leads. Unfortunately, nothing happened. Over the first few months of the investigation, no one was arrested or detained in connection to the case. Her husband had been officially ruled out. They couldn't determine who the bloody footprint found in the kitchen belonged to. And although there were signs that she had been sexually assaulted, they couldn't pull any testable DNA from her rape kit. So, there wasn't much for investigators to pursue. But right before the case was on the brink of turning cold, they received a big tip that seemed to turn everything upside down. The clock is running down. A once-hot case teeters on the edge of going cold. But out of the blue, a surprising tip appears. What does it mean? Stay tuned to find out more. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. 
As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Less than four months after Lindy was murdered inside her apartment, another woman was killed nearby. Like Lindy, 43-year-old Mary Shinzing was also found stabbed to death inside her Lancaster County, Pennsylvania home on March 5, 1976. At the time, Mary lived alone in an apartment not far from Lindy's. Both women were stabbed to death. So when the police learned about Mary's case, they couldn't help but wonder if they were somehow connected. You've got two female victims, both stabbed in their unlocked apartments, living only a few miles from each other. So everything seemed to point in the direction that the same perpetrator who killed Lindy might have also killed 43-year-old Mary. But as quickly as this theory emerged, it was trampled. 11 days after Mary was found dead, her killer was arrested on March 16, 1976, 33-year-old Kenneth Dale Arndt from Columbia. Following his arrest in Mary's murder, he was also questioned about Lindy's murder. But after questioning him, the police announced that they didn't think he was involved in Lindy's murder. So once again, the investigation was at a standstill. No one knew who assaulted and killed Lindy Beechler. For the next nine months, very little progress, if any, was made in the case. Within just a few weeks of her murder, all the tips had dried up. The police didn't have any promising suspects. Mary's murder might have given them a little bit of hope. But once it was determined that the two murders weren't connected, the cops were left with nothing. By Christmas time of 1975, the investigation was a year old. Many people, including Lindy's family, wondered if there would ever be an arrest. But before they worried too much, someone paid a visit to Lindy's grave. One day after Christmas, on December 26th, Lindy's family discovered that her tombstone had been vandalized. A sick vandal sprayed red paint on the stone that sat on the ground above Lindy's grave. The stone was also chipped and nicked like someone had been smashing it with something, maybe like a knife. But the damage to Lindy's gravestone wasn't new. By the looks of it, someone had done it a month or two earlier, possibly in November. However, it wasn't until December 26th that her family discovered something was wrong at the gravesite. Because during their visit in early November, the site remained untouched. Clearly, the incident must have occurred sometime between early November and the day after Christmas. But who would use red spray paint on Lindy's grave? And who would want to vandalize her final resting place? Isn't a cemetery supposed to be a sacred place? Free from vandalizing and disrespect? 
Who would want to do something like this? The most likely answer to that question seemed to be that it had to be Lindy's killer. It all seemed to add up. Her grave was vandalized around the same time as the first anniversary of the murder. The nicks and chips on the tombstone looked like they came from a knife, like someone used a knife to cut at it, which is similar to how Lindy was murdered. She was stabbed to death with two knives. And maybe this was the killer's way of reliving the murder. Maybe he decided to visit her gravesite around the first anniversary to relive what happened on the night of the murder. But there was nothing about the vandalism that told investigators who was responsible. All they could do was speculate whether it was Lindy's killer, but they still had no idea who he was. No one at the cemetery reported seeing anything suspicious around the grave and no eyewitnesses. Was the killer trying to send a message? Or did they show up at the cemetery to relive what happened a year earlier? Did he still want to feel close to Lindy, although she was dead? Then, just weeks later, the anonymous letter arrived at the police station. On January 5th, 1977, the police received a strange letter marked urgent. The letter claimed to be written by Lindy's killer, but the police weren't too sure. Even though whoever wrote it made specific references to the murder and the vandalism to her tombstone, the cops thought it was probably written by someone playing a mean practical joke. But could the cops have been wrong in 1977? The letter was a mix of cursive writing and hand-printed. It seemed to have been written in two parts. The first part was from someone who claimed to be Lindy's killer, the guy who assaulted and stabbed her 19 times two years earlier. But the second part of the letter was from someone who claimed to be the killer's friend, a Janice Crum. Here's what the entire letter said from start to finish. Quote, Hi, Sheeler. Just eats up your heart knowing you haven't caught me yet. Still around. Lindy's marker on her grave just turned me on like she did. And the way she looked, all bloody, like the paint on her marker. The scratch and nick marks represent the knife stabs. Count them. You wondered if the guy at the gas station in Mountville were related to the Beechler's murder. Forget it, man. No way. I'll tell you what, Chief Pig, you print this letter in the paper along with a picture in Friday night's Lancaster paper and Sunday morning's paper, and I might confess when I get off my trip. You see, the world owes me a living. Maybe I give you a few hints who I am. Got busted once for drugs a few years back. Live in West End of Lancaster suburbs. I'm five foot ten tall, 205 pounds, fat and beautiful, and capable of killing again without knowing it. December 5th, 1975, was under the stupor of amphetamines, like right now. Well-educated man in the community, single, good job, but God please, chief, help me. I am losing my mind. Help me before I kill again. The headaches kill me every time it aches. The drugs only calm temporarily. Will God forgive me? 
please print this chief in the paper so I know you got it. Then I write again. God, I need a priest. What have I done? Help me, please. P.S. Chief Stealer. My friend confessed to the killing of Lindy Sue Beechler. As God is my witness, do as he asks. Print this letter on the front page. I'm not aware of his intentions right now, but contemplating murder is not his intentions. He is mentally sick. When the letter appears, then he will turn himself in. He described the relationship he and Lindy had before he killed her. He only realizes it now that you're on drugs. You're not responsible for your actions. Please, he is asleep now. That's why I finished the letter. All I can tell you, my friend, frequents Manor Shopping Center in the evenings and the fields around it, mostly weeknights. He will contact you very soon. And oh, when he does, please bring a Catholic priest to the police station. Janice Crum. End quote. The entire letter was a lot for investigators to process. Was it really Lindy's killer or not? The first part of the letter seems like it was written by the killer himself. He talked about what he did to Lindy and her tombstone. He references the fact that there were 19 nicks and scrapes on her grave, and she was also stabbed 19 times. He referenced a possible suspect the cops considered in the early part of the investigation, a man seen at a gas station who was reported by witnesses who thought he had something to do with Lindy's case. He then pled with investigators to publish the letter in the newspaper, a request not uncommon when it comes to killers writing letters to the police. Think BTK, the Zodiac Killer, Jack the Ripper, and David Berkowitz just to name a few infamous killers who, in their history, wrote taunting letters to the cops. He also gave investigators clues about who he was. Middle class, lived in the suburbs, probably just a seemingly average Joe. But then the entire tone of the letter switched. When the cops got down to the bottom of the letter, where it said P.S., the letter seemed to switch from being the killer to being a friend of the killer, someone pleading with the police to publish the letter before he kills again. Not only were investigators unsure if Lindy's true killer wrote the strange letter, but they also doubted it was two people. Instead, they thought the same person wrote the letter. They also couldn't find anyone, any woman named Janice Crum, the name that was signed at the bottom of the letter underneath the P.S., So, was the letter actually written by Lindy's killer? Or was this a cruel prank? Maybe someone wanted a little bit of attention. It wouldn't be the first time that someone wrote a letter to the cops falsely confessing to a murder. In the end, the cops decided the letter lacked credibility. After they received that letter, they never heard from the author again, so they assumed it was simply a prank. If the letter did hold the golden ticket to solving Lindy's murder, the cops missed their opportunity. Could the key to the truth be concealed within the letter? How did the author know about the grave? Could it be a split personality disorder? Prepare to be surprised by the shocking conclusion. 
Following the weird letter, Lindy's case turned cold again. Over the years, her murder became the oldest cold case in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Her case seemed destined to be cold forever. A few suspects were considered throughout the years, but none panned out. First was Kenneth Dale Arndt, the 33-year-old who was arrested and ultimately convicted of a similar murder, Mary Sheesing. But in October 1982, the cops had a second promising suspect. Investigators considered questioning mass murderer Gerald Eugene Stano about Lindy's murder. Stano was arrested in April in Florida earlier that year and claimed responsibility for murdering at least 37 women. What interested law enforcement was that Stano's father lived in East Hempville Township at the time of Lindy's murder. But that was all the authorities really had. He was a serial killer who claimed to have murdered many women, and his father lived near Lindy's apartment. But that was pretty much it. Stano never confessed to murdering Lindy. No solid evidence existed against him. No forensic evidence was linking him to the case. No eyewitnesses. So he was never charged. In 1984, authorities also considered Mark Capalupo. According to an article by the Intelligencer Journal, the district attorney's office allegedly paid $2,000 to two California-based psychics to evaluate Lindy's case in 1981 and 1982. According to these psychics, Lindy's killer had a tattoo on one of his arms and had dark olive or brown skin with brown hair and brown eyes. When the psychics provided this description to detectives, they thought it matched Mark Capalupo. This guy had been charged with sexual assaults in Lancaster County in 1975 and later shot and killed by a prison guard during an escape at Lancaster County Prison. Mark Capalupo might have matched the psychic's description of Lindy's killer, but he couldn't have done it. According to verified employment records, He was working at the time of the murder, nowhere near her apartment. So it would have been impossible for him to be the guy. DNA testing was also tried over the years. In April 1989, an article by the Sunday News reported that investigators tried new DNA testing to analyze a spot of dried blood suspected of belonging to the killer. But when the sample was collected, it couldn't be tested. The technology available to law enforcement in 1989 wasn't good enough to generate anything useful. Despite becoming the county's oldest unsolved homicide, Lindy's family never gave up hope. In December 2007, Lindy's younger brother put up a billboard on Route 30 near her old apartment asking for tips about her murder. Law enforcement continued to pursue leads. They even partnered with an FBI profiler to generate a profile of Lindy's killer. But nothing seemed to work or move the investigation forward. But all of that was about to change. In June 2018, the police arrested and charged Raymond DJ Freeze Rowe with the rape and murder of Christy Maroc, a 25-year-old schoolteacher who was killed in December 1992. In that case... Detectives were able to collect DNA evidence from the suspect at the crime scene, 
but couldn't find a match in any database. For years, the case was cold. But instead of giving up on it, the district attorney from Lancaster County decided to reach out to Parabon Nanolabs to see if advanced DNA testing could be done on the sample collected from the crime scene years earlier in 1992. There wasn't a match when the DNA was first tested and put through different databases. But instead of looking for a direct match, Parabon Nanolabs used the DNA sample to create a family tree of the suspect through a process called forensic genetic genealogy the same technology used to catch the Golden State Killer. Once Parabon Nanolabs had the suspect's family tree, they narrowed their search to potential suspects. And from there, they had it down to one guy, Raymond Rowe, a.k.a. DJ Freeze, a local Lancaster County DJ. After that, authorities directly compared Raymond Rowe's DNA to the DNA collected from Christie's murder, and they matched. After almost three decades, Christie Marac's murder was finally solved with forensic genetic genealogy. So when it came to Lindy's case, investigators wondered if the same technology could be used to solve her murder. In 2021, DNA collected from Lindy's clothing was sent to Parabon Nanolabs, the same private lab specializing in forensic genetic genealogy. The sample also didn't match anyone in the databases. But Parabon was able to determine that Lindy's killer likely came from Italian descent. But that didn't tell investigators much because at the time of the murder, more than 2,300 people with Italian genetic ties lived in Lancaster County. So, any one of those 2,300 people could theoretically be their suspect. From that list of over 2,000 people, scientists at Parabon conducted traditional genealogical research on each person. They needed to eliminate as many people as possible from that list. To do that, they needed to check off several boxes. Was the person a male? Because Any female on the list could be automatically excluded since semen was found on Lindy's body. Was the person the appropriate age at the time of the murder? They couldn't be too young or too old, so that eliminated a lot more people. After the lab went through the entire list of people with Italian ancestry living in Lancaster County, they picked out one individual, David Sinopoli. Scientists at Parabon Nanolabs went back to law enforcement in Lancaster County and told them that they had a promising suspect, 68-year-old David Sinopoli. He had Italian ancestry. He lived in Lancaster County at the time of the murder. He was the appropriate age. And he lived at the same apartment complex where Lindy lived a few months before she was murdered. But before the authorities could move in and make an arrest, they needed to directly compare David Sinopoli's DNA and the DNA collected at the crime scene. Tracking David down was easy for detectives. David still lived in the area even after all of these years. So once Parabon Nanolabs alerted authorities about him, they started conducting 24-7 surveillance. Before that point, 
Sinopoli had never been on law enforcement's radar. In a move straight out of a television show, Lancaster County detectives surveilling Sinopoli retrieved a coffee cup that he had thrown away in a trash can at the Philadelphia International Airport before boarding a flight. Since he threw the coffee cup away in a public trash can, that meant law enforcement didn't need a warrant to pull it from the trash can and test for DNA. Before the sample could be compared against the DNA collected from Lindy's clothing, they needed to make sure there was usable DNA on the cup. Without sufficient DNA for testing, they couldn't match it against the sample collected from the crime scene. And they wouldn't have enough evidence to prove that it was him. Fortunately for investigators, the coffee cup did have enough usable DNA to be tested. And when it was compared against the DNA collected from Lindy's clothes, they 100% matched. 68-year-old David Sinopoli's DNA was on Lindy's clothing from that night. Over four decades later, the man responsible for assaulting and murdering Lindy inside her apartment was finally arrested on July 18, 2022. This arrest was a big step forward for solving the county's oldest cold case. But the story isn't over quite yet. Immediately following his arrest in July 2022, David Sinopoli has continued to maintain his innocence. He claims he had nothing to do with Lindy's murder and wasn't inside her apartment that night. Although he reportedly lived in the same apartment complex just a couple weeks before, he says he's innocent. Over 20 close family members and friends attended one of his first court appearances in September 2022, where the judge in the case ordered him to stand trial. Family members and friends were heard outside the courtroom saying things like, we love you, David, while taking photos and videos with their phones as he was escorted out. Today, David Sinopoli is awaiting trial for the 1975 murder of Lindy Sue Beekler, who was stabbed 19 times inside her Pennsylvania apartment. Although DNA collected from her clothing matches his DNA, he denies any involvement. He vows to take his case to trial, which is set to begin later this year. Currently, he's being held in the county jail without bail. Very little is known about who exactly David Sinopoli is, but here's what we do know. He's from East Hempful Township, but lived in the same apartment complex as Lindy for a little bit. He moved out sometime before August 1975. His unit was a few spots away from Lindy and her husband's on the second floor of the four-floor unit building. Before Parabon Nanolabs identified him as a suspect with genetic genealogy, law enforcement never considered him a suspect in the case. And by all accounts, he lived a normal life after Lindy's murder and even got married, a marriage he still maintains today. There is still so much to be uncovered about this case, like a motive. If David Sinopoli is responsible, why did he do it? Was the attack premeditated or simply a crime of opportunity? Was David a peeping Tom and stalking Lindy? Did he know Lindy because he lived in the same apartment complex? Or did he just so happen to see her alone that night 
after she got home from grocery shopping. If he is innocent, as he claims, how did his DNA get on her clothing? Could the forensic genetic genealogy testing that was done on the clothing be wrong? Can forensic science ever be wrong? With so many questions, this story might be far from over. To share your thoughts on the story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller Audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or telling friends and family about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., Nicole G., Paula G., Christine B., Karen D., Nancy H., Sherry A., Elizabeth M., Michael D., Nicola, Jerry M., Brian W., Natasha K., Julia S., and Jerry L. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.